played this cue before This card was pretty strong It always made my main deck Playing it was never wrong But now something's different I'm in a new world I wish this car was special Why don't you still feel special? It's power creep My cube has changed now What's this card doing here? It doesn't belong here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. Morning edition. Anthony and I are recording for the first time in the morning, which we, we have not done in the past. Usually we're recording on a Friday afternoon or evening, but uh, it's, it's, it's bright and early, Anthony, on a beautiful day here in Baltimore. We're going to have some real caffeinated energy on this show. Yeah. Yeah, Anthony is a coffee drinker. I am not because I have too much natural energy and when I have coffee, I get real, I get real panicky, Anthony. I get kind of shaky. It's not good. Is that not normal? I thought that's what I, I mean, supposed to be. I that's, that's normal, that it's, just, it's just not for me. I don't, I don't like it so much. But um, this is not a coffee podcast, Anthony. This is a magic podcast. And this week we're going to be talking about power creep as it applies to cube design, which is, a, I think, I'm excited for that conversation. I think it's going to be very interesting. I have a lot of fun places I think we can go with it. We were taking a little bit of a break from, from Zendikar Rising, I should say. We, the last two episodes we recorded were, you know, mid-spoiler season episodes about Zendikar Rising, talking about modal double face cards talking about the announcement but uh we're gonna be we're gonna return to zendikar rising uh, in a couple episodes here once we uh have a chance to digest it a little more but i do want to sort of note right at the front of this episode that uh our zendikar rising cube survey is out so if you are not aware at lucky paper we do a survey of cube designers for every set that is released and basically ask people what cards they're testing in their cubes, and importantly, how they think they're going to perform, right? So we have a little scale that is sort of documented on the survey that you can sort of rate these cards by. And uh, we do this for, for a couple of reasons. The main reason is just so we can really just document and sort of quantify the community's initial response to new cards and get people all excited about a new set. So if, uh, if you're listening to this episode, you probably have a cube. And if you do, we want to hear what cards you're testing from it. So you can uh, check out the show notes or go to luckypaper.co. And there's a little banner at the top of the page, which just says Zendikar Rising Survey. And you can find it there. Big thanks to Anthony for building this beautiful survey we have, Anthony. Uh, lots of people have complimented your great work. Wow, that's, uh, that's very generous. Just doing my job. It's nice to get... It's, it's not your job. You're not paid for this. <laughs> I'm not? This is not your job. This I hate the to break it to you. Here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, maybe it's uh, hopefully it's fair to say, even if uh, it's it's a weird time and maybe you're not actually uh, keeping your uh, your cube and paper up to date. Uh, we definitely just still want your input. We'd love to know from as many people as possible how they're evaluating these new cards and what they think of them. So definitely, definitely give us your information. Yeah, it is a funny time. Some people aren't actually updating their paper cubes because why bother? Most people yeah. can't play with them. 
but um but yeah like like anthony said even if you're not it's still useful to do and i should i want to note too that even if you are not a uh if, if you don't th if your cube is abnormal right you're not playing a cube that just runs the sort of you know typical we, we've referred to it as like the like legacy power optimized cube or whatever this kind of like type of cube that is very prevalent. Um, we still want to hear from you. If you have a weird theme cube, if you have a cube that's based on flavor text or what's in the art, um, we're trying to basically document as many different approaches to the format as possible. So your, your voice accounts no matter what it is you're testing from the set. I think uh, this might be the first set where uh, a card that I'm testing actually makes it into the, the uh, actual graph that we make in the article. What, what card do you think that is? Uh, what's it even called? The Little Bird. Ah, uh, the fledgling griffin is that? Fledge it? It's not fledgling griffin. I think it's sort of a, a parody on that. Actually, it's uh, fearless fledgling. There you go. But it is a griffin, right? Yes. Not gotcha. technically a bird. So yeah, check out that survey. That's what I want to talk about at the top here. And then uh, yeah, stay tuned for a conversation about power creep. But first, we have our pack one, pick one from a listener submitted cube. And given that we are talking about power creep in this episode, Anthony, I thought it would be appropriate to talk about a cube of a different power level. And the power level I've chosen here is a cube that is all old border cards. So we're looking at a cube that the sort of design restriction is old borders, nothing in new borders or new frames. Anything that was printed in old frame, though, is, is sort of on the table as a potential inclusion. And uh, this particular cube is designed by a user of the MTG Cube Talk Discord named Swervestar, AKA Ben. Thank you, Ben, for the pack. And uh, Anthony, Ben has provided a photograph of actual paper magic cards for this pack one pick one, which it's just refreshing to look at real magic cards, I gotta say. That's so cool. I'm jealous of somebody actually getting to touch their paper magic cards. And, and Ben's cube is beautiful. Lots of foils and, and pretty cards in here. So I will post this pack one, pick one in the show notes for this show, which you can find at luckypaper.co slash podcast slash 12. And you can go check out the photo there. All right, Anthony, I'm reading the pack this week. So let's dive in. The first card is Blinding Angel. Do you know that one? Ooh, I'm really curious how many of these, uh, how many of these cards I'm actually going to recognize. Um, Blinding Angel. I want to say it's a five mana two four. When it attack, if it deals combat damage to your opponent, they can't attack next turn. You nailed it. Oh my god! This card was actually in one of the very early versions of my cube. Back when my cube was just a pile of cards I liked from my trade binder that I couldn't play in any other context. Yeah, this is a five mana two four flyer, three white white for a two four flyer that basically keeps your opponent from attacking you back. I just, just from the little bit I know about this cube, I'd be surprised if this is a, a frequent uh, first pick, but it seems like a very strong card. I think it's very cool. Next card, Anthony, is Polluted Delta. I think you know that one. I do know that one. That's going to be uh, a candidate for a first pick for sure. Yeah, we, we've talked about first picking fetches on the show before, so we'll just uh, let's just assume that that's going to be a high pick, and we can maybe talk about our first pick after Polluted Delta for the rest of the pack. Especially uh, in this context because it's a blue one. Yeah, and something could dethrone it, possibly, but uh, maybe not. We'll see. The uh, next card is, some people would probably first pick over a Polluted Delta. It's Bribery, Anthony. Ooh, uh, so what is this? It costs five, maybe, and you search for a creature from your opponent's library? Five mana sorcery, three blue-blue to get the best creature from your opponent's library and put it into play under your control. I have actually only ever seen this played in Commander, where I know it is quite strong. I, I don't actually know how useful it is in a limited environment. This is very commonly played in powerful cubes that have, like, cheaty archetypes, so your opponent could have, like, an Emrakul or a Grizzlebrand in their deck. I don't like the card that much because it does suffer in, like, like basically, if your opponent's playing aggro, it's pretty bad, and you have to just cut it. 
And, you know, even if they're not playing aggro, it's possible they have some of the best cards in their hand. So for five mana, it's a little bit swingy. But it, it is beloved because pe people just like stealing their opponent's cards. It's just fun oh, to sure. take your opponent's cards and kill them with it. In this particular environment, you know, one of the card types that really uh, suffered in, in, in old border cards is just big threats, right? Right. Like if, you, if you look at a sort of power optimized cube by modern standards, there is nothing even close in an old border that would compete with Emrakul, Sundering Titan, uh, Grizzlebrand, you know, these, these giant threats that people are putting in their reanimator decks or their sneak attack decks. So, so here, I, I don't think it's the pick for me or even very high of the picks, but it's, uh, this is a beautiful bribery, I gotta say. So check out that picture when you get a chance. Yeah, I really would want to be able to get something that's actually costs more than five mana, so you're actually getting value out of the card, other than obviously some flexibility. And there just aren't that many creatures that cost more than five. Or that are very good. And Anthony, the next card, as if it was here to demonstrate this feature, is uh, Phyrexian Colossus. Do you know what Phyrexian Colossus says? I can. It has such a cool illustration. Um, I think. Does it? it it's a. Uh, giant creature and it doesn't untap but you can pay a bunch of life to untap it yep it is seven mana for an eight eight that it doesn't untap during your untap step you can pay eight life to untap it eight life. and it also can't be blocked except by three or more creatures which is a pretty good evasive ability this seems pretty weak to me i i don't have a good sense of how like much ramp is in this environment or if there are other cheating mana cheating effects but in terms of old border, like, big threats, this is probably near the top of the tier list, I have to imagine. Especially colorless old threats. You know, this is a colorless card, so... Yeah, I'm not going to take it early, but if I end up in some strategy that wants big creatures, this will be one that I would uh, be keen to take in this environment, I imagine. Interesting. Right, here's okay. one I don't know, Anthony, so I'll just read it right off the bat. This is Yavimaya Granger. Unfamiliar yeah, to me. Yeah, that this sounds is, familiar, uh, but I couldn't tell you. This is two and a green for an elf... Uh, it has Echo, and it's a 2-2, and it says when it comes into play, you may search your library for a basic land card and put that card into play tapped, shuffle your library afterwards. So it is like a really bad Farhaven Elf or Civic Wayfinder. A slightly better body, but it has Echo stapled to it, which means you got to pay for it twice. Yeah, I'm all about uh, drawback mechanics, but Echo is just not a great design. Echo is just, it feels bad most of the time. It feels bad to not pay for it. It feels bad to, to pay for it. It just, uh, no matter what you do, it ends up not feeling great. This next card here, Anthony, is another card with Echo. It's Goblin Marshal, which is uh, six mana, four red red for a 3-3 three, three goblin that comes into play, and it puts two other 1-1 one, one red goblin creature tokens into play. Uh, and that's when it comes into play or is put into a graveyard from play. So, so really the two modes here are... Pay six mana and get four one ones over two turns, or pay six mana and get two one ones and a three three. You pay the echo cost again, another six mana, and then you will get two more goblins whenever that three three dies. Hmm. So it's like a big Mogwar Marshal. Exactly. Um, yeah. This seems pretty reasonable as far as a big creature, but yeah, it's definitely not where I want to start. Yeah, six mana for I mean even a three three and two one ones is still looking pretty rough to me. All right. Next up is probably a card you know, Werebear. Oh, Werebear's great. Uh, yeah, so it's what, a two mana taps for green, and if you have Threshold, it turns into a 4-4? Four, four. That is correct. You nailed it. And it's quite good. I think aside from Polluted Delta, uh, this would be my pick. I agree with you completely, and yeah, I think this is quite good. I mean, it, it's a scalable mana dork. It's worth noting in Old Border, we do have access to a lot of the one mana mana dorks, so whether there are any in this pack or not, we don't yet know, but... That is not a category of card that suffers dramatically in Old Border. 
But the like, fact you know, that this also transforms into a threat later in the game is a very real, real part of it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, that that is great. That it can theoretically, you know, be a late game threat as long as well as an early game ramp spell. All right, next one, Anthony. I'm just going to go ahead and read. It's a voice of all, which is two white, white for a angel. It's a two-two with flying, and when it comes into play, you choose a color, and it has protection from the chosen color. Uh, that seems pretty strong. I think I definitely like it more than the the previous angel. So maybe falls number three in the pack for me so far. Yeah, I like this approach. To, I mean, generally, protection is not a mechanic I like very much, but I like the approach here where you get to choose. So it's not just a random dice rolls, whether or not it has protection from your opponent's deck. And you can also only get protection from one of your opponent's colors, so uh, it seems like a reasonable implementation of protection. This next card, Anthony, is a very controversial cube card. I have seen people just argue and fight like dogs about this card. Uh, it is Psychotog. Do you know what Psychotog does? I do. So I actually, uh, maybe a while ago at this point, uh, got to do an Odyssey draft. Somebody had bought some old booster boxes. And this was my pack one pick one, and I was so excited to draft with it. And uh, it was just not the color that was open, and I ended up drafting mono green, which worked well. But uh, I think it's a very cool card. I don't want to start with a gold card, but it's definitely worth worth noting and would be a very powerful card in your deck. Yeah, there was a time where... I would say, like, two or three years ago, a lot of even, like, the most power-optimized cube designers felt very strongly that Psychotog was, like, a top-tier finisher in control decks. And I think now, with all of the kind of busted blue-black cards we've gotten in the past two years, it's really hard to make that case. I have not seen anybody making that case anymore. But there was a time where people would just argue to no end about whether or not this was a really good finisher or not in a control deck. It's, it's rough to compare it to, you know, the Scarab God and Hostage Taker and, and all these kinds of cards. Ashiok, yeah, for Ashiok. sure. Next card is a card you have beat my face in with before. It's Grizzly Fate, Anthony, your favorite. Oh, yeah. This was a, a staple in my battle box. It was way overpowered for the, for the context. Makes a bunch of bears. Yeah, so it's, it's five mana, three green green to put two 2-2 two, two bear tokens into play. But it has threshold. Instead, you put four 2-2 two, two green bear tokens into play. So potentially five mana for 8-8 eight, eight worth of power across four bodies, which is great. And then, Anthony, on top of that, it has flashback for five green green. Do it again. Mana. So you can theoretically make eight bears <laughs> with Grizzly Fate, which is, which is quite strong. I think this card's great. It's probably, like, after Polluted Delta and Werebear, the card I would take out of this pack, I think. Uh, yeah, that's exactly where I am. It's a, it's a ramp payoff, but a very good one. Uh, and I don't know how likely you are to have Threshold online, but the floor, if you don't, is still okay. I mean, like, five mana for two two twos is not a terrible rate for, you know, this era of cards, and it's got flashbacks stapled onto it anyway, so not bad. All right, the next card is a card I actually really like, Anthony. It's Assault and Battery. Do you know what that one does? Mm, I'm not going not gonna to struggle over this one. <laughs> yeah, don't struggle if you don't know it. All right, the first one, the first side is a Sorcery Speed Shock. Uh, that's what Assault is. This is a, one of the split cards, uh, you know, the little two little mini cards, half and half. And then the other side is uh, four mana for a 3-3 three, three elephant token, both at sorcery speed. That seems pretty good. The flexibility is really nice in that it's it's sort of like a hybrid card where if you take this early, you can end up putting it into either color. But I think this still falls below uh, the those two green cards and the Polluted Delta for me. I would probably put take this above Grizzly Fate just because it is cheaper. Uh, I think the Shock side is the side I mostly plan to play mm -hmm. this as, and I'm, I'm very happy to have a Sorcery Speed Shock. I think it's just a good spell in this environment. 
and then you know the extra gravy of possibly being in red green and getting to play both sides or my, having my draft go differently and ending up in not red but still being able to play battery makes it a pretty high pick for me i think yeah that makes sense a Fetto Extermination is next, Anthony. I'm sorry, no. A Fetto Exterminator. I have to say, I love all border cards, but the readability is lacking. <laughs> this is this is two and a black for a creature... Um, can't read the creature type. I'm going to assume minion? I don't know. Uh, it's a 3-1 that has morph for three and a black. And when it's turned face up, target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. So... Assuming you don't want to play this as a three mana vanilla three one, this is basically you know you play it as a morph, so three mana for a two two, and then later on you can pay three and a black to flip it up, remove a creature, and have a three one in play. That seems quite strong, and everybody always loves a morph. It's definitely slow. I, I don't I don't think I put it near the top of the pack, but uh, it could be very reasonable. I mean, it's a two for one. It, it does cost you know seven mana to get that two for one, but you can break it up over a couple turns, so it might get there. You'll know the next card, Anthony. It's him to Turok. <gasps> wow. Target opponent discards two cards at random. Maybe it's not opponent. It is player. You can target yourself. At least, well, the text on this card I'm looking at says player. I don't know if that is reflective of the actual Oracle text. Here's the real important question uh, before I make any kind of decision is which printing is it? Which particular illustration? This is one of the Ice Age printings of Him to Turok, which is maybe the only old border Him to Turoks that exist. Uh, and it is, I think, the cloak one. It's the one where it's got like a wizard and you can see like a big cape kind of swirling up and around and then it's kind of glowing mana in his hands. Okay, so I have that one below the, the wolf version. version. But I think it is still... I think that's... Yeah, I think this has to be my pick after uh, Polluted Delta. It's really strong. It's also really committal. I mean, double black, you're kind of committing really hard. I, uh, but I, it's, I mean, certainly the effect is, is backbreaking very often. Uh, it can just end the game on turn two. If you make your opponent discard, let's say, mm, all of the lands in their hand or all of the non-lands in their hand, which is definitely possible to do with it. If you've never played with this before, the fact that it is discard at random is really what makes the card so powerful as oh, compared yes. to, you know, Mind Rod. It is very punishing. Yeah, it's it's very strong. I, it's for me. It's kind of werebear and him to truck. I think it's really a matter of what I want to do that day. Do I want to like make no friends and just <laughs> ruin people's afternoons, or do I want to play a, a nice, reasonable magic deck? And I'm not sure. All right, two cards left in the pack, Anthony, and the second to last card is Echo Tracer. This is another morph card. So the the sort of front side of it is just two and a blue for a two two. But the uh, morph cost is two and a blue, and if you turn it face up, you can bounce a creature. So this is a, you know, morph version of a mana war. That is a pricey price tag. Yeah, I think this is probably a little worse than the other morph card we saw here, the Effetto Exterminator. Not not what I'm all, not what I'm all about. Certainly not compared to Bribery, Werebear, Him to Turok. It was some powerful cards in this pack. Agreed. All right, last pick. Honestly, could give. A lot of these cards run for their money. It's just Wasteland, Anthony. Hmm. To me, that's still not something I'm really excited to first pick. It definitely still just fits into aggressive decks for me, but I could be wrong there. Here's my thought. So I, I'm still, I think we're both taking Polluted Delta. We can say that pretty safely. Yeah, for sure. My next pick could honestly be Wasteland. And what might keep me from doing it in this environment is that we are, again, in an old border cube. And what that says to me is that, frankly, I think compared to other cubes, there's going to be a big difference between the most powerful and least powerful cards in this cube, just because you still have stuff like, 
you know, him to Turok and, uh, you know, Wasteland and Polluted Delta, which are like really, really powerful cards that most people play in their like, you know, most powerful power optimized cubes. And then you have stuff like, you know, Voice of All and Echo Tracer, which is, you know, probably a a C, a C draft common in their, in their original set, right? And I, this is not a criticism of the cube. I think this is part of what's interesting about this era of magic is that this cube is trying to capture an era of magic where there was a much bigger power differential between the most playable and least playable cards. And I think there's a, a lot of charm and, and fun to that. But in a normal environment, I'd be excited to take Wasteland because I would say to myself, well, you know, this is cube. Uh, assuming I find a lane that is reasonably open, I will get just more playables than I need to worry about. Playables are not a thing I'm going to be concerned about. So taking a colorless land first is is good upside for me. It's like, you know, I'll take a Wasteland and play that in pretty much any deck that I get and be happy with it. But here, I think it's actually going to fall below stuff like Him to Turok and Werebear and Assault and Battery for me because, because I actually do think that my, like, 23rd and 24th card is going to be way worse than my, you know, top five cards. And uh, I don't want to... Just take a land first, I don't think. Oh, I mean, I'm taking Polluted Delta. I don't want to take a utility land first. That makes a lot of sense to me. I gotta say, Anthony, I just, I do love this era of magic. It just, it's it's charming and heartwarming to see these old cards. I really like them. Thank you to Ben, aka Swerve Star, for sending us this pack. I really appreciate getting the actual photograph, and, and Ben provided the photograph on very little notice on this Saturday morning, so thank you for that, Ben. If you want to have your cube featured on Lucky Paper Radio, you can send us a link to mail at luckypaper.co and include your pronouns, include how you want to be credited, include a brief description of what makes your cube interesting or novel, because I, I try, if you, haven't, if you haven't been able to pick up on it, listener, I try to pair the cube we're drafting with some idea of the theme that we're talking about that episode, so that's why that description is helpful. It helps me kind of like, you know, triage all the cubes we have submitted and pick one that's appropriate for the episode in question. And you, you too can have your cube on Lucky Paper Radio. This could be you, listener. Anthony, I want to talk about power creep. I think we should start just by defining what power creep is, because importantly to me, power creep is not a thing I see discussed about with regards to cube very often. It's something that comes up all the time with regular sets and other sort of things, but... I don't see people talk about power creep in the context of cubes. So first I want to define just what power creep is. And I, I think actually you have probably listened to more episodes of Drive to Work than I have. So do you want to kind of just maybe for people that have not heard the term before, give a brief definition of what power creep is? Sure. So here's the issue. They keep making more magic cards. Uh, they keep going to this pool of cards that you can choose to play or not. If they don't make the new cards in some way more powerful and more exciting, you're just not going to end up adding them, and every set will have fewer and fewer cards that are actually relevant to add to, like, an internal format card pool. So the biggest way they solved that was just by introducing rotating formats so they can maintain the same power level and continue to have new cards that are relevant in the format. But we definitely still see this sort of gradual increase as people want more exciting and splashier cards. Right, yeah, even within, you know, standards rotating format, right, you know, if a new set comes out, like Zendikar Rising, and none of the cards are, you know, significantly better or noticeably better than the cards that are already in everyone's standard decks, then you could theoretically have a set come out and have no impact on standard. Like, none of the cards are seeing play in any of those decks, so they don't change the meta at all. And of course, you know, I mean, Wizards is a business, they're trying to sell packs, they're trying to generate excitement, they're trying to get people excited about the game, and if a whole new set comes out and the game doesn't change at all, that's not a recipe for a successful business over time. So even in a rotating format, right? Like 
they have cards that sort of fall off the back, which means there's a there's a lot more forgiveness in terms of uh, you know printing cards at C play because there's just a much smaller card pool. But still, if every set is a little more powerful in some ways than the previous set, the the idea, the sort of problem of power creep is that over time you just you keep compounding this problem and making more and more powerful cards, and you end up in a place that is not where you intended to be. It's not sort of recognizable to sort of the early stages of the game, and you just get you know, these cards that uh, are just too powerful and then like kind of like break the sort of way the game is supposed to work. And uh, this is something that people observe a lot about, you know, regular magic design. And I think it's worth talking about how Wizards of the Coast has uh, dealt with this problem, or at least how they say they've dealt with this problem, which is that Mark Rosewater has talked about how it is a fundamental rule of designing a game like this, that there is going to be power creep. And the way they try and combat that is basically to have a cyclical kind of power creep where... The way the thing that is powerful is not all of the cards in every category and every color and every like strategy getting better, you know, across the board. It's that we go through these cycles where it may be like proactive decks or artifact matters decks or you know something like that will be really powerful for a while, and they can kind of like follow the power creep along that curve, and then they can introduce uh, a different strategy that uh, you know like control or something that becomes more powerful. And, uh, you know, that can then take over sort of a little bit of the spotlight and a little bit of the power creep. And while focus is on that, they can actually go and depower all of that aggro stuff or whatever, all of that proactive stuff that was really powerful for a while and depower it without people being like, oh, all these cards are unplayable. There's nothing in this set that's worthwhile. And so the way they try and do this is basically like these cycles of highlighting a type of card, uh, a, a kind of strategy, making that powerful for a while, and then quietly in the background depowering the other stuff so they can then later on repower that stuff and again make it exciting and kind of ramp it up Um, classic misdirection which i think is a pretty brilliant way to solve the sort of power creep problem in normal magic and for the most part i mean still overall like we're looking at this old border cube and you know a set like odyssey certainly over the like 20 years since odyssey came out we have seen a lot of power creep in magic in general but there are still cards from this, you know, cube that see play in uh, the most power-optimized cubes. So there are still outliers and standouts that uh, are not likely to be sort of replaced by by new cards, which is, I don't know, it, it speaks a little bit to how impressive it is that over, you know, the 25 years that Magic has been a game, they have managed this power creep problem somewhat reasonably, I think, all told. I don't ever hear people talking about power creep as it pertains to cube but it seems to me like this exact same idea entirely and like directly applies to cube design which is that new set comes out you're a cube owner a cube designer you're excited about some of the cards in that set probably some of the more powerful cards if i if i'm if i'm to guess and so you put those cards in your cube because you want to test them and what happens is your cube gets a little more powerful right and it's worth noting you could be interested in cards that are not you know, more powerful than the cards in your normal cube. But if you add them to your cube and your drafters are, you know, trying to play to win, and I think for, I think in a, in a lot of ways, cube designers have to assume their designers are playing to win for sort of the structure of magic to hold up and the idea of a draft to make sense. Um, if, they're not, if they're playing to win, they're just not going to play those cards you put into the cube that you liked, even if, you know, they're cool and interesting and you like them from the new set. So really to get played in your cube and to get tested and to be evaluated, like a card has to be, a little more powerful than other cards that are already in your cube. And over time, I think what happens to most cube designers is their cube just gets more and more and more powerful. And the reason this topic came up to me, Anthony, is because we talked a few weeks ago on the show about players' sort of preference for powerful cubes and how 
in a vacuum, players just seem to prefer more powerful cards, more powerful cubes. And there isn't really a great explanation as to why, because as we talked about, you know, you can have just as interesting of games, in some cases, much more interesting of games with less powerful cards, less powerful cubes. Uh, there's nothing actually about the game itself that makes it more fun if you're playing at a higher power level. But people tend to trend this direction. And I think it's because of, effectively, power creep. Like, you, without realizing over time, your cube gets more powerful uh, because you keep adding cards to it. And those cards are a little better than cards that were there before. And the result is that uh, your environment kind of changes, maybe in ways that you're not not consciously aware of as you're as you're developing your cube over time. Right. I mean, I think it functions, uh, or the, the the sort of motivation behind it is a little bit different than power creep in actual like magic design that Wizards is doing. It's it's like you said, it's just that when you take new cards, the ones that you're most excited about are often going to be the the most powerful ones. So there's sort of like this crosstalk between what's good and like as far as game design and what's good as far as being a powerful card. But more importantly, I think the driving factor is if you're looking to make cuts from a cube, you'll often just look at that, you know, bottom 10% and say, well, these cards are just literally never played. No one ever picks these because they're just not good enough. Uh, So you end up cutting them. And that sort of iterative process ends up pushing you towards just more and more powerful. I think it's much harder for somebody to say like, well, I need to make some cuts. Let's instead look at the top 10% because those are the cards they're excited about. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you, I know, have, like, maybe more than most other cube designers I've talked to, been very conscious about, like, a lot of your cuts are actively depowering your cube. And I was wondering if you could talk about, like, how you decide that a card is too good and, like, when you decide when a card is performing well, whether you should take that card and just take it out or whether you should make the other strategies around that card better so that that card is no longer an outlier. Well, the thing that I've been struggling against is that in a lot of cases, the the strategies that I want to promote that I think are you know, introduce fun gameplay, there's just not an opportunity to to raise the power level there. Um, so really, the only option is to depower the the other things. And Where as far as like some of those some of those strategies uh, that I'm trying to support, yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the big ones are like heroic. I think is a really fun and pretty open ended mechanic. Things like the lands matter, uh, especially like making sure that the man lands are are very powerful and viable. What else do I have going on? Who can even remember? Token strategies, stuff like that, one one counters. But when I when I notice that basically just playtesting is the most important thing to identify what are problematic things, um, and the specific signs that something is problematic is when it is like warping the draft. Like people are rather than trying to build these synergistic decks, they're just putting together these sets of the most powerful cards in isolation. Um, right. That really sort of takes away from the experience. Yeah, we've talked about that quite a bit, so you can find other episodes of us talking about that sort of effect. I'm curious, have you ever cut a card that was a role player in one of the archetypes that you are actively, consciously aiming to support, and you didn't feel like was uh, abusable by that sort of ignore all signals and draft four or five color good stuff strategy just because it was too good in whatever archetype you were aiming to support? Like, was there a heroic card that was just too good in the heroic deck that you had to axe? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, Feather is still in there, and I think that's one of the um, most powerful cards. Uh, I guess I'll take that back. I did cut, what's it called, a Chroma's Vengeance? This is a red-white fireball that lets you... Um, that's Aurelia's Fury. A Chroma's Aurelia's Vengeance Fury, is the yes. six-mana board wipe. Um, and that's definitely like a card that I wanted to be sort of a signpost for this, because the fun thing is you can point some of that damage at your heroic creatures or at Feather to be able to buy back that spell. But it definitely ended up just being like an extremely powerful spell on its own. And if I'm honest, just, it's one pe- that... Just people getting fireballed out of the game. Right. Um, and the weird thing is, it didn't actually 
pose a problem, like players were not taking it highly, uh, but I think that was a mistake, so I sort of proactively chose to remove that. I, I think one of the principles of my cube over time is that I have grown into this approach where I don't, like, you very consciously are like, I'm trying to support things I consider to be fun gameplay, and you have these, you know, mechanics or archetypes that you are basically aiming to make viable. And I think because that is your goal, that clarifies when cards need to be cut because they are basically, you know, this card is on its own good enough to completely invalidate an entire strategy that I want to be viable, and so this just needs to go because it is against my sort of design ethos. And I think one big difference between how I approach my cube is that I don't have like a sense of decks or archetypes that I consider fun or I'm trying to actively support. I feel like I am more exploring what these cards can possibly do. And if certain combinations of cards or deck strategies end up being too powerful, I'm usually trying to ask myself, how can I make everything else more powerful too so that this is no longer standing out? And that doesn't always work. I have cut cards for power level reasons for my cube on more than a couple of occasions. Uh, we've talked about Oko. It's a good example of a card that, you know, you can just cast it on turn two with a lot of decks, and that just kind of invalidates a lot of other things these other decks could be doing. And there's not really a way to just juice aggro or juice control or juice mid-range so that they can beat that, right? It's just that's just a start that kind of invalidates a lot of things other decks are doing. So so Oko is on my, my list of cards to get rid of. Um, and I've cut other cards for similar reasons, like, you know, True Name Nemesis is a good example of a card that just, sometimes it just takes over the entire game and ends it single-handedly, and it doesn't really matter what your opponent was doing, and, you know, if they didn't happen to draft a particular kind of card that's an answer to it, which is otherwise somewhat narrow, then, you know, they just lose, which is, which is a bummer. So, so it, it's very clear to me that you're basically saying, I want to make these things viable, and I will, you know, make changes to the environment and depower things as necessary to make these strategies work. And uh, my approach is just, when something seems too good, can I make everything else better enough, making whatever changes I have to without an idea of what's fun or what I'm aiming for to make those things compete? And if not, uh, after trying, then I will actually cut the thing that is, that is you know, causing the problem. Right. The other thing that's really informed my thinking a lot recently um, is just actually thinking about my cube almost more as a pauper cube. Um, pauper or peasant? I'm always mixing it up. Um, <laughs> peasant is the uncommon one. <laughs> peasant. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. Um, specifically in, in the terms that a lot of the, the things that you get excluded from a peasant cube are these like rares that are a real source of card advantage. A lot of the rares that I am allowing my cube, they are rares because they do something that's either a little bit more complex than usually you would see it uncommon or because they're a little bit more efficient than you would see it uncommon. But I'm instead very skeptical skeptical of the cards that actually just generate that card advantage, which makes a lot of the other themes and sort of like the combat-focused nature of the cube not really uh, viable. Sure. So there's a couple other impacts of this power creep, which I think is important to talk about. And one of them that I observe pretty often is... Uh, <sighs> I, I want to. I'm going to say. I'm going to say this, but then I want to explain why I really don't like this term. People will talk about either pet cards or even worse, they'll call a card like a sacred cow. And what they mean when they describe a card as a sacred cow is that it's a card that has historically been very good or very powerful or very beloved in in a cube environment that has overstayed its welcome. Basically, like people like this card too much and aren't able to see that it's actually bad. And uh, I don't like that term. I have a very strong aversion to it for, for my main reason is that I feel like when you call something a sacred cow and you're describing somebody else's cube, you are projecting a reason for that card's inclusion onto them, right? You are assuming 
oh, you're only playing this card because you consider it like a staple of the format or you just like it a bunch or you think it's really powerful and, uh, you know, you just can't see the truth, right? That this has actually been, you know, power crept out of viability. And I think it's wrong and dangerous to ever assume people's intent, right? They may be playing right. that card because they like the effect or it happens to work with a particular, like, little archetype they're trying to sort of work on. And it just so happens to be a card that was you know, included in many cubes just for, like, general power level reasons. But but their reasoning, you have no idea what it is. Unless they tell you, like, I don't know, I just uh, thought it was good and didn't think about it any harder. And so I really don't like people calling a card a, a sacred cow because it basically is just, you're basically insulting the person by saying, you haven't looked at this critically. You're just assuming this is good and, you know, considering it, you know, unable to be cut. It's it's sacred. It's, it's too, it's untouchable, which uh, I, I think is wrong. So, but there is this, I think, pattern of people having this like slow power creep in their cube over time, right? New cards come out, they're always cutting the worst cards from their cube or what they perceive to be the worst cards. And they're always adding in the new and exciting cards that they're most pumped about from the new set or that, you know, are exciting pools for their drafters or their players. And I do think over time, oftentimes, this happens to me too, it happens to everybody, everybody designing a cube, like things that you just considered viable are actually slowly become not viable anymore because the environment has been slowly shifting. And it never was such a sudden change that you were like conscious of that change. But over time, cards do become irrelevant. And it's, it can be oftentimes hard to see that, I think. So we shouldn't call them sacred cows. We should call them boiled frogs. Is that kind of what you're saying? <laughs> that, that's, that's honestly a better name. That also you know, implies some history to the cube, which you may not know from looking at a list. But, but yeah, I think that's actually more what happens in a lot of these situations, right? Where it's like, you know, and some cards I'll point out here, like, uh, you know, one example that comes to mind for me is like Solemn Simulacrum, right? This is a card that for a lot of people, when it was printed, you know, way back in Mirrodin, it was pretty head and shoulders above any other like colorless value card that it was in existence, right? Just, you know, kind of a two for one guaranteed, almost always a three for one uh, in some ways. And just colorless, four mana, like gives you a little bit of tempo, blocks a thing, like just a very solid value card. And over time, I think that card has started to look really, really slow and inefficient compared to most other things at four mana in basically every color in, the, in, in any cube environment. But I still run Solemn Simulacrum. I think it's probably one of the worst cards at four mana in my entire cube, but it's also offset by the fact that it is colorless. Meaning it can go in theoretically any deck. It's very open in the sort of draft. So in some ways, it kind of fits into this slot like the Triomes do, right? Where I've talked before about how I think the Triomes are like a C plus to B minus land in every deck they end up in, but their extreme flexibility in the draft, the fact that each Triome can be fetched by nine of the 10 fetch lands gives them really high value in the draft. It allows you to kind of stay open and, and take cards flexibly. And I feel like Psalm Simulacrum is kind of like that for me. But that's a good example of a card that I think if you are not very critical and like always reevaluating every card in your cube as sort of things change, that's a card that you know can very slowly become not very appealing anymore, or not as appealing as it used to be as cards get more powerful. That's interesting. So it's it's like we we've talked about the sort of crosstalk and how you might take your evaluation of a card in the, the perspective of putting in a constructed deck, and that might inform how you think it is good or bad in a cube. But in addition to that, just sort of the, the fact that the cubes themselves have this history means we might have these like misinformed uh, concepts about cards that just aren't actually relevant in the current context. Yeah, yeah, I think we're all biased by the history of our own cubes and that changes our 
it ch changes our per our perceptions of our environment based on like what it has done in the past. And you may still be able to remember just tons of powerful plays and powerful sequences and 3-0 decks that like ran these cards. But the reality is that if you've had your cube for four years and you can remember that for you know 75% of that time, you know this card was very dominant, then it might feel like in your memory, this card is very often very dominant, right? 75% of the time is really powerful, but you know your cube four years ago, it's like a ship of Theseus situation, right? Like your cube four years ago may differ by hundreds of cards from your cube now, maybe completely different environment. And so really it's hard to actually compare any of those performances to what your cube currently is. And if it hasn't been performing well for the past six months, nine months, 12 months, that just might mean that it's been crept out of power and you just have, it's hard to sometimes realize that. Why is magic so hard? Can we just make it easier? It's like, we can't, we can't no, reevaluate every card in every fun. context. <laughs> the reason it's, the, fa the fact that it's hard is what makes magic fun, I think. I believe very strongly that if this game were uh, more solvable or more easy to understand, then uh, there wouldn't be people making podcasts about it and talking about it and making Discord servers about it. And that's the whole, that's the whole fun of the entire thing. Did you listen to the latest episode of Limited Resources? I did, and I was just going to bring that up. Oh um, for people God. that haven't, can you tell them the sort of brief conversation with BDM that, we're, uh, that I assume you're referencing? Uh, yeah, so basically BDM was talking about what Magic used to be like and how much fun it was to play in this uh, context where there wasn't information about what the actual like, viable strategies are. There weren't like a lot of professionals trying to solve the format and make that information available. And at the same time, magic design just wasn't as refined. So it wasn't just like all the cards are kind of functional and you'll just like always have a decent limited deck if you follow a sort of basic strategy. And honestly, that's really why, that's exactly why I love playing Cube so much is that every time you approach Cube, it is not a solved format. You can't go listen to the episode of the podcast that tells you here's what the draft strategy is. You have to try and reevaluate all these cards in a new context. Um, so I think it, a lot of what, was successful about Magic at this uh, time period that they were talking about really applies perfectly to Cube as well. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I didn't, I didn't totally agree with BDM's like evaluation of modern limited, and and the comparison he made was was very stark to me. He basically he alluded to some like vague issues he has with like the prepackaged Commander product from Watsi, and said that in some ways he feels like modern sets for limited are similar. And I think what he's basically getting at is that the cards are designed so carefully for such a specific use case that they end up kind of almost playing like training wheels, right? Like they, like it, you, you can't make a mistake anymore because there are just so many playables in every color. And, and, you know, it just means that you just kind of pick a color and draft cards and your deck ends up totally functional. And he sees that as a sort of detriment to, to modern limited. And, the reason that stood out to me is because I share what I think are BDM's criticisms of the off-the-shelf commander product that Watsi produces. Maybe we'll talk about it at length more sometime. I don't like to be negative on the show, but I, I honestly feel like the products catered specifically to commander players had a very profound effect on commander as a format and basically just introduced a bunch of like staples to the format that invalidated a lot of like otherwise fun, interesting things you could have been doing in the format that now, like, in order to do those things, you, of course, still can. It's a casual format. You can do whatever you want. But instead of it being, like, you're plumbing the depths of magic history to find interesting, weird old cards and make them do things in a deck, it's like you have to actively ignore this giant pile of extremely powerful cards that would make your deck way better, and they're cheap, and they're accessible to you, and you have to, like, actively shun them to go do this interesting thing, where before... 
Every deck in the format was like that. Before we had all of these staples that are printed in the Commander products that are designed for multiplayer play, everybody's deck was this weird, cobbled-together mess of just, here's a weird old card that, you know, wasn't printed with multiplayer in mind and does a weird thing in this format. And I'm like, you know, I just dove deep on Scryfall and tried to find all of the... Uh, all of the extra like weird cards from this tribe or effect I could find and like put them together. And that was what it felt like when I started playing Commander. And we started we started playing Commander kind of right at the beginning of when Commander products started becoming really popular. And there's something that I think was lost uh, in the format overall when so many powerful, like, you know, easy in includes were introduced into the format. Um, and I don't feel that way about Modern Limited. I feel like uh, it's very easy to draft a terrible deck in Modern Limited. I've seen people do it all the time. I've done it myself all the time. And I think that there's still... I, I don't think... He, he basically said that he thinks the, the skill ceiling has been diminished by the fact that there are so many playable cards. Um, and I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that Modern Limited sets are just as, if not more, skill testing than these old Limited sets were because the old Limited sets, uh, as they pointed out in this episode, it's like... Cards were just straight up unplayable. Like, and, and really, the sort of the the first step of being a decent drafter was knowing which cards were stone cold unplayable. Never put this card in your deck. And there are very few of those in Modern Limited. And so I think that means that because we can't just rule out a whole chunk of the cards from a normal Limited set and say these are completely unplayable and should be ignored, that there's more nuanced decisions to be made that actually test skills a little more thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. I, I also don't know that I agree with the value judgment that. That change makes Modern Limited worse. I, I love Modern Limited. But I do think that perspective uh, on what's different is extremely valuable. And I actually, just after listening to that, uh, cut a boiled frog from, from my cube just because of the, the thought technology that you're not really making decisions and scraping for your 23rd card in most cubes where the cards are all just playable. So looking at some of these cards a little bit more critically and saying, like, even though it has a decent floor, it's not that bad, you could put it in your deck... Are people actually ever going to do that? No. Let's just cut it. And that's honestly an argument against Solemn Simulacrum. Like, yeah. that card could be very open in the draft, but if this environment is flush with playables and, you know, has enough mana fixing that you can get a safe mana base and play two colors pretty easily or splash a third color, then, you know, in theory, if that's always going to be someone's 26th or 27th card, then it's just not worth its slot anymore. And maybe that's something I should reevaluate. I do think there is a kind of another category of these boiled frogs which by the way i love the term thank you for for introducing that into the into the sort of lingo which is cards that are not power crept out of existence or out of sort of viability but cards that whose role is no longer necessary and the the example here that i'm going to be cutting from my cube very shortly i, I have not been as you intimated i have not been keeping up with paper changes to my cube as uh as rigidly as I normally am, so I have a big stack of cards that I'm planning on putting in. I already have cuts lined up in my head, and a card I'm going to be cutting is is Armageddon, which is a card that huh. is obviously very powerful, right? Like, Armageddon is extremely powerful in an aggro deck, or really any deck where you can just be ahead on board and, and cast it. And the reason it's in my cube is that for a long time, the way that I was approaching aggro, aggro really struggled in a lot of matchups and just really couldn't win a lot of matchups if certain cards were resolved and your opponent had, you know, pyroclasms or whatever. It was just kind of an unwinnable state for aggro. And so I felt like aggro needed this very polarizing, uh, you know, extremely swingy card in order to have a chance in those matchups. And that's why it was included. And over time, I have refined my approach to aggro. I've sort of made my support for the archetype more deep. I think I've added more 
mana sinks, more late game relevant cards, like all kinds of stuff that I think makes aggro no longer be unfavored in that matchup, in the matchups where prior it would have really liked an Armageddon. And so I think I've gotten to a place where I can pretty safely cut it and not decrease the viability of the aggro deck in my environment. And I'm happy to do so because it is a really swingy card. It does not align with what I really like about magic. Well, it is symmetrical. I love symmetrical effects, but it is uh, a symmetrical effect that just basically, you know, locks the board state into whatever it currently is and it doesn't change for the rest of the game. So that's a good example of like, if I am not constantly reevaluating like, how are these matchups playing out in my environment, I might still just assume this card is necessary. And frankly, what clarified it for me was the rotisserie draft we did a while ago. I was drafting mono white aggro, which I pretty clearly staked out in the first few rounds of the draft. And so I like made my rank list of like cards I really wanted. And frankly, Armageddon was near the bottom. I was like, I don't really need this card. Like, I don't need it against the control decks. I don't really want it against the aggro decks and some mid-range decks because it could actually be a liability. And so in in that situation, it was just, this card's not that great anymore. And I only realized it by doing the rotisserie draft and having that sort of moment of forced reflection about it. It's so hard to understand how that that exactly what you described happens all the time. I'll look at a card and say, this is totally good, you know, it interacts with ABC, it does all these things, and then as soon as I sit down, I have it in my draft pool, and I just, you know, immediately say, okay, well, you go to the sideboard, and all of that rationalization just disappears as soon as I start actually looking at a card from a critical perspective. That It's it's just so informative to actually play with the cards. Yeah, it it, it is, it's, it's a big difference. But yeah, so like, this is what I've been thinking about, basically, is like, power creep is not, I mean, obviously, power creep in, you know, block quotes or whatever, is a, like, linear progression over time to, like, things getting more powerful in general. But there are other ways in which cube changes over time, right? Like, I think the aggro decks in my cube have gotten better in a way that they are more prepared to go up against their otherwise bad matchups and don't need to lean on a really polarizing swinging card in order to, like, fix those bad matchups, basically. Which is a place I'm much happier with the decks, and so I'm, I'm happy to have that slot to stick some other card in that is still good in aggro, but also good in other situations and, you know, isn't so polarizing. Here's a, here's a thought I had, Anthony. Again, we were, we were talking about this question of why do people seem to prefer powerful environments, both for their own cubes, making them more powerful, but also, like, you know, we run community drafts of, of cubes on the, uh, the cube discord, and it it's oftentimes difficult for lower power environments to get the excitement around them, right? People are excited about drafting right. more powerful environments. Uh, and sometimes it's a hard sell to get them to sort of draft a less powerful environment. I had a theory, Anthony, is this like racing? Is this like, you know, Mario Kart where you've got the 50 CC, the 100 CC, the 150 CC. And even though it's the same thing at every sort of level, it's just more fun to do it at the extremes to like challenge yourself and basically be pushed to the limit. That is a perffect analogy, um, except it, it's just wrong, uh, because Mario Kart is more fun at uh, the highest power level. Well, so why is Mario <laughs> Kart more fun at 150cc and Magic know. not more fun at you know, Vintage Unpowered or whatever? Well, a lot of it is the design of the courses. You can get better slides around the corners, like the, the turn radius is, is just right. I is find this, you have this, to actually use your brakes. Is this you're looking for? <laughs> I find you have to actually use your brakes in 100. So I mean, this, this, let's actually get into this, Anthony, okay? Because <laughs> I, I'm interested in this. I haven't so played the, in a while. I, I, I have not played much in a while. I did play very briefly, uh, like a few races just a, a few weeks ago for a, a reason. But the courses are the same layout, the same dimensions at every speed. But obviously, changing the speed totally changes the way you interact with the course. I've actually found for me in Mario Kart, I actually kind of like 
the 100cc speed, at least for somebody who is not as invested in playing Mario Kart and getting good at it, I find at 150, you probably actually have to use the brakes sometimes. Do you think that's the case? I've never never observed that. I think they added, never the, they, they added the, like, 10,000cc or whatever. Um, and at that point, yeah, you, you get to, to the opposite point where moving at full speed, the turns just don't make sense anymore. Is there 200cc in some? Uh, no, I can't remember. We're going to get some emails about Mario Kart, I think. <laughs> But so you do think it's generally faster at, at or more fun at higher speeds because you're right. You get to slide more. There's a sort of less tolerance for mistakes and it kind of rewards people that are maybe a little more skilled. How is that different from magic? It might not be. Like, like is getting to slide more around a corner in Mario Kart, not like getting to, you know, flash back a bolt with your Snapcaster mage as opposed to like having to play some mana war and then, uh, you know, uh, shock. I don't know. So what you're saying is power creep is great and we should embrace it and just go for maximum slide all the time. Well, no, I, I'm genuinely asking the question here because I, I think that's an interesting comparison. And the other comparison I'll make, which is that you have pointed out a bunch of times that uh, something that you really believe in and sort of like about Magic's R&D is that they are always trying to make the like correct thing to do if you are playing for win percentage also the fun thing so that you are rewarding the player for trying to win by also letting them have fun and not just making this powerful strategy that is no fun for you or your opponent, but is the best thing to do so that people are like begrudgingly winning games, but not doing the most fun thing. If power creep is a, a fact of any kind of environment like this, and the most powerful thing is also the most fun thing, do you think magic has fun creep? Has it gotten more fun <laughs> over time? Oh, fun creep. I, you know, if, if, I go to a party, I would so rather be hanging out with the fun creep than the power creep. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, uh, do you think do you think that like gotten more that like fun. current standard, because it is more powerful than standard from ten years ago, which is objectively true, I think you could demonstrate, do you think it's also more fun because the more powerful thing is the more fun thing? I, it's hard for me to agree with that. So what I want to compare it to is they recently on Arena did what they called a turbo draft, and they said everybody gets a um, an emblem that says all your spells cost um, five less to cast, I think. Uh, did you this play any of that? This on Arena, you said? Yeah. No, I, I did not see that or play it. I have no experience with this. So basically, and it, and it was a draft of Ikoria. So basically what it did is... Oh, it was a regular the... set. It wasn't like Correct. a cube yeah, yeah. or a special set of cards. So the crystals all cost zero. So they were just... Try mocks, mocks with cycling, which is insane. Um, <laughs> the, there were a number of cards that just were colorless cards, the fox and the caterpillar that just were, you know, free creatures that search up lands. Uh, you're playing like one mana, five twos that destroy your opponent's creatures. It was just bonkers. And there's um, that one with flash as a three, three, right? With three plus one, plus one counters on it. Yeah. I mean, that card was insane. Like my, my favorite, or, well, yeah, this is, this is what we're going to get to. The... Most insane turn one I had was at the end of my opponent's first turn, I flash in this caterpillar, and then on my turn, I mutate an auspicious Starix on top of it and end up getting Ugh. a 7 7 out of my deck. And I, I cast it on their turn, so my Starix now at haste, effectively. Pretty cool! And, and like you're saying, like that was magic at 800cc, and it was fun. But at the same time, because the course wasn't shaped for that, like the cards hadn't been designed to be played that way. The format was actually fairly limited, so it was fun for a few times. What a great analogy! Thank once, you, Mario Kart. <laughs> once you sort of knew, like, well, these are actually the like only these twenty cards matter. You sort of saw how it played out, and it lost a lot of that value. Uh, so I think that that's kind of where I land: is that 
yes, more fun is, or more faster is often more fun, but only to the degree that the, the structure of it actually makes sense and you still have a, a, the opportunity to solve interesting problems um, and play with a variety of different tools. And, and what a good point that, like, now a subset of cards in this environment matters so much more than every other card right. that you end up with a sort of limited take. And I think that is fundamentally the cost of power creep in any environment, including in a cube, which is that you can put the most powerful cards in, but if you put the most powerful cards in, then you have, like, let's say uh, 12 cards, right? Like the Black Lotus, the Moxes, Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, uh, Time Walk, uh, you know, these cards that just matter so much more than every other card that so many of the choices are basically invalidated, right? Like, right. And this is why, like, things, people are always talking about how much of a bummer it is to try and play, you know, green-black mid-range or green-white mid-range in a powered cube, and it's just like, yeah, none of your cards matter. <laughs> like, you're, right. you're, unless you have Black Lotus or some Moxin, you're playing a bunch of cards that are fundamentally kind of irrelevant in this environment because other people get to storm off on turn one or, you know, do some broken reanimator stuff, like do things that it's just not on the same, they're not racing on the same course you're racing on. And that is, that is a huge problem. So really, I think that that's why that's, that's the cost of power creep in a cube, right? Like if you are going to run the most powerful strategies in cards, if the presence of a card invalidates a bunch of other cards, like completely, then you're basically just limiting those things and you're playing turbo draft and you're racing on 8,000 CC and the one course with the straights or whatever is just the only one that's viable anymore. And that's where I think we have to like draw that line, right? So that, that is what Oko has become for me in my cube. It has become powerful enough that it just means so many other cards don't matter anymore. And that's a problem because it makes my environment less engaging and less interesting. Right. I do think it's worth considering though that the turbo draft is fun. We could do exactly the same thing and say all your spells cost two more to cast instead of less. Uh, and it would still have the same effect of saying, well, we now have to recontextualize and reevaluate all these cards in an interesting, challenging exercise. But it would suck. But it would be awful. You just God, sit there, I... like, it'd be turn four before you ever do anything. But why? So, yeah. Th- that is interesting. Like, I mean, it's, it's, I think there is a fundamental, like, law where it's, like, it's just more fun to do more stuff. And yeah. as things get more broken, you're more likely to do more things than less things, which I, I have to admit, I don't really like drafting and playing pauper and peasant cubes, especially pauper, because I, I feel like I don't get to make very many decisions in the course of the draft or game. It's, like, I take the best cards I see... And I kind of run them out whenever I can, but uh, I, I just feel like the number of options available to me in terms of like varieties of effects on the cars and different types of decks I can draft is just really limited. And I just get to like kind of play, just curve out magic and hope it works, which is, I, that is my, that's my feeling about it. Logically, I know that it's like, it's a, it's a deep environment. There's lots of variety there. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually sliding, you know, pauper or peasant as an environment. It's just not for me because it doesn't sort of align with the things I want to do with, with magic. Yeah, that, that's kind of like, to me, just tapping two mana on every spell, right? Like, we're playing these pauper cards that there are rare versions that cost way less. Like, I don't know. It's just, I, 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 there is something about just doing more stuff and having it be cheaper and faster that is a more fun experiment than what if we experiment by making everything really slow and insufferable, which is no longer any fun. The other thing that I thought was interesting about the TurboDraft experience is that, you know, we... we consider some of these cards like Black Lotus and the, the rest of the power, power Nine are like these sacred, extremely powerful cards. But if you want this powerful experience, you can just house rules it and, you know, make triple mocks. And that's not that hard to do. And you can actually like play this powerful 8 million CC experience without these expensive cards. 
Yeah, and a great example of that is just the conspiracies. Many of the conspiracies are as powerful, if not more powerful, frankly, than taking a Black Lotus for your deck, and those cards are all $1 foils. So if, if you want to if you want to play with broken stuff, like, make your conspiracy cube, and you can do broken things. Make your own emblems. Make your own, you know, turbo draft emblems or whatever, and uh, you can basically play at the sort of fringes of, of magic power level without having to, you know, invest in Black Lotuses. Those conspiracies really are busted. I'd be so curious, like... Again, it is great that we have all these different cubes where they are not solved formats and we get to explore and try and solve the, these problems ourselves. But I would be so interested to have like real professionals try and optimize formats with conspiracies and, and actually get a clear picture of just how busted these cards are. Yeah, just which ones are the most powerful and why and how much better they are than everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Conspiracies are broken. Is that a good place to wrap it up, Anthony? Uh... I Do you have know. any other thoughts on power creep in cube design or in general? Uh, no, I have no thoughts. I, I think I like where we ended. I think that uh, I think the racing analogy is a good one for me, and the sort of comparison to Turbo Draft is very apt as well. I just and, really want to play Mario Kart now. Yeah, I mean it's a fun game. You get to do those slides. It would be so much less fun if Mario Kart didn't have those slidings. Those slide. <laughs> It'd be nothing. It, yeah, it wouldn't even be a thing. It would just be like game design is strange. All right, Anthony, this has been. Your episode of Lucky Paper Radio, episode 12. If you have a question for us, you can send it to mail at luckypaper.co. We love hearing from listeners and are happy to, uh, you know, hear your thoughts on what we're talking about and maybe address questions on air. All of our music is brought to you by DJ James Nasty. Thank you, DJ James Nasty, for the great music. And Anthony, thank you for talking about magic. Love to talk about magic. 